I'm Tommy Salmons. This is Year Zero. It is September 12th, 2019. This is 18-year anniversary of Year Zero in the United States. Not the podcast. I've only been podcasting a year. A year and one week, actually. Uh, first episodes dropped on September 4th, 2018. Who'd have thunk it? I've stumbled my way through a year of this. And those of you who have been listening for a year, I thank you. And those of you who have been listening for a week, I thank you. I, uh, I hope I'm getting better. I hope that the information you are getting is informative in some way. I hope at least I pose some questions that make you think about what's going on because that's what I'm all about. But what led up to the attacks on September 11th, 2001? From everything I can gather, reading... Scott Horton's book, Fool's Aaron, looking back at all the different events that were happening throughout the years leading up to, to 9-11, there seems to be some strategic purpose to 9-11. I've I've never considered myself a 9-11 truther. I've always thought those guys go a little too far. And I look at everything skeptically and try to figure out why, uh, why exactly these things are going on. So in the in the eighties, the Soviet Union was at war with Afghanistan. And the CIA was issuing illegal passports to Al Qaeda members and uh, Taliban members. And they were shipping them into the United States and they were training them and then shipping them back to um, Saudi Arabia and Afghanistan to fight the Soviet Union. And what the United States was hoping was to give Saudi Arabia their own quote unquote Vietnam. And to create such financial hardships that the Soviet Union could no longer financially stand and fight the Cold War. The Cold War was a lot of espionage and there was a lot of 
arms manufacturing that was going on in the Cold War. It started shortly after World War II because the Soviet Union saw the might and power of the nuclear bomb when the U.S. dropped the bomb on Japan, or the bombs, multiple bombs on Japan. And it has been speculated that the reason the U.S. dropped these bombs is because they knew that their next rival geopolitically was going to be the Soviet Union. And they wanted to show the Soviet Union their strength and that the U.S. is not to be messed with and that it had nothing to do with ending the war, that the war was ending and Japan was ready to was already in the process of of stepping out of the war and prior to the bombs being dropped. The fire bombings that were happening around Japan were killing several times more people than the nuclear bombs ever did. But the size of the explosion, the 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 impact, the detonation, the destruction left behind by the nuclear bombs that were dropped was a symbol of power, of strength. That we have this weapon and we are not afraid to use it. So to to put that idea in the in the minds of the political elite of the Soviet Union so that they would not further pursue expansion throughout Europe. And then after the detonation of these bombs and after the war ended, the Soviet Union actively engaged in espionage to steal the science in order to create their own bombs, which they did successfully at some point in time. I think it took them, I think it was in the 50s before they were able to uh, develop nuclear technology of that destruction level. And that led into the more tense parts of the Cold War. You had the Cuban Missile Crisis um, and, and, and things of that nature. There's a story of um, a Soviet officer that stopped a potential nuclear launch on the United States. Um, their satellites had picked up something, don't know what it was, but their satellites picked up something that they read as a nuclear warhead coming into, towards Moscow. And they were all set to launch. I think all the orders had been given to launch a nuclear strike. And uh, this one officer refused. And come to find out, there 
radars had picked up something and falsely interpreted it as a nuclear warhead. And this one particular uh, Soviet officer, and I could be wrong that it was an officer. I don't know. I'm, I'm saying he was an officer. Um, I can't remember his name. It's been a while since I read on it. But this one particular gentleman saved uh, uh, the world from experiencing an, a full-out nuclear war between the Soviet Union and the United States. The, the Carter and the Reagan doctrines, when it came to fighting the Soviet Union in the Cold War, was to bankrupt them and to ramp up the arms race. And Eisenhower had warned of this, that when you start giving these arm, arm manufacturers, you start depending so much on these arm manufacturers, the military industrial complex, so to speak, when you begin to really depend on them economically, that they aren't, that there's, it, it's really hard to turn away from that because it's a proven system of economic um, growth that you're producing these, these arms and you're selling them around the world and increasing the GDP locally or, or in the country. So Reagan ran as he ramped this up and was training Al Qaeda and training the Taliban and, they were illegally moving people, moving these quote-unquote terrorists in and out of the country and training them on CIA bases, um, what they call the farm. Many of them spent time there. They were doing it to defeat the communists. The problem is it never stopped. Michael Springman wrote a book called Visas for Al-Qaeda. And he was in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia between 1987 and 1989. And it was his job it, within the State Department to issue visas. And he discusses how these people would come in with no ties to their, their – no proven ties to their native country. They didn't own any land. They didn't have any family to, that, that could be tra traced. They, there were no ties. There were no solid ties to prove these people were going to just visit the United States as tourists or whatever and come back to their home region. And he, he talks about how some of these guys were from the Philippines coming into Saudi Arabia to get visas from this specific embassy because this was a CIA-run embassy in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. And his orders were to issue these visas no matter what. And he would, 
he caused a lot of trouble because he would turn down some of these guys. And when the CIA would approach him, he would say, no, they need to get their shit together. They need, they need to, I need to have at least the paperwork in order. You know, I got to cover my ass. And he didn't know why this was going on. And it wasn't until after the fact that, that he found out that these guys were being trained to fight communism. And he said, had they told me that, I probably would have gone along with them. And after 9-11, he, he began looking into that. And he found out that this practice was continuing. It was still going on in 2002, 2003, 2004. This was still going on out of the same embassy. In that nearly everyone, I think it was all of the hijackers except for one, received their visas from this specific embassy. That 14 of the hijackers received their visa from one specific State Department official. I can't remember her name. It was Stiletto or Staninko or some weird name. Um, in that she was issued with the task of assuring that these visas were, were issued properly and these men gained access to the United States. This was a CIA-run operation to import terrorists into the United States and train them on military bases around the country. Then you had a story that came out a little bit later. I think it was in 2004, 2003. It was discovered that two of the hijackers had roommated with an FBI informant in San Diego. And this was a well-respected, tested informant. And these two hijackers lived with him. Then you had the stories of all the Israeli intelligence cells. I think it was over 20, 23, if I'm not mistaken, that were discovered throughout the United States in the weeks leading up to 9-11. And they were being broken up. So when you, when you look at these things and then you hear stories um, like that of Mr. Jenkins, uh, Barry Jenkins, I think it was his name. I'm horrible with names, guys. I can barely remember my own name half the time. I'm lucky if I get it right. I think his name was Barry Jenkins. And he was in World Trade Center 7. And he was talking about all the explosions that were taking place throughout Tower 7 the building that collapsed that was never hit by a plane. You can see why people don't buy the narrative. 
you can you can wade through the facts of the case you can wade through the janitor's testimony of explosions in the elevators and coming from the basement prior he 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 testified that there was he was on basement level one and he testified that there were explosions beneath him in basement level two prior to the first plane hitting the World Trade Center. So you can understand how the distrust creates more conspiracy. You can think back to the Warren report and how much of a crock of shit that Warren report was and how Kennedy had created such enemies within the CIA, within the federal government, in the banking community, in the mafia, in Cuba, in Russia, in the State Department, and how all of these entities had reason to want Kennedy dead. And you can see how these conspiracies come together. You can see that the CIA comes out with documents that says if people don't believe the narrative that our narrative on what happened, despite whether it's true or not, if these people do not believe this narrative, then we are going to label them conspiracy theorists and demonize them as being kooky conspiracy theorists that are crazy and paranoid and probably belong in a mental hospital. And prior to during World War II, these people would have been locked up in a mental hospital. They would have been locked up in prison for being dissidents. If you talk about the evils that took place in World War II, the concentration camps of locking, the, of locking up the Japanese in internment camps during World War II, you're a conspiracy theorist. But these are things that are proven to have happened. And so... It seems to me, it's, 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 it's my understanding and my, my thought process is that these guys, whether it's the Church Commission, the Rockefeller Commission, the Warren Commission, the 9-11 Commission, whoever these people are at this time, it is their job to hide truth and insert conspiracy narratives that push people off to the fringes of society. I remember there was a, a video, there was a, there was a gentleman from the 9-11 Commission named Bob Carey. I think he was a senator. And there's a video of him talking to a 9-11 truther. It's short video. It's about a minute and a half long. And he tells that the, the, the guy approaches him, the 9-11 truther approaches him. And he tells him, we know that the Pentagon continuously lied to the 9-11 commission. And you are aware of this. You've reported on this. And we want to know, when are we going to get to the bottom of this? And Bob Carey says, well, we're never going to get to the bottom of this. It's never going to happen. 
and the, the, the kid says, well, if we never get to the bottom of it, the country is lost forever. Because truth and transparency is, is key in liberty and in freedom and in having a just and legitimate government. And Bob Carey said, it's a 30-year conspiracy. You're not going to find the end to it. We can't have that discussion here. We don't have the time. Now, was 9-11 a 30-year-old conspiracy, as Bob Carey claims? I don't know. Possibly. Or was he referring to 9-11 being blowback for the foreign policy of the United States over the last 30 years? I think that's more believable. If you look at the at the charges that bin Laden made against the United States, he discusses the invasions. He, he discusses the bombings of the Middle East. He discusses the the existence of military bases in Saudi Arabia and the the military operations that were taking place from these bases. He discusses the funding of Saudi Arabia like we see in the Yemeni war at the moment. And then he, then he discusses how he wants to draw the United States into a war of attrition in Afghanistan. A nation that's never been conquered. Since the 4th century, the Pashtun people have been fighting off foreign invaders and oppressors. They don't want to be occupied. They don't want a foreign power dictating how they live. They want their sovereignty and their freedom. No matter if you think our way of life is better. No matter if you think that the United States, quote unquote, the, the, the Western culture is better. They don't want it. They want their own traditions. They want their own land. They want their own way of life. And you can call them barbarians, and you can call them Stone Age, and you could call them a bunch of fucking barefoot goat farmers. They don't care. They want to live their life. They want to be left alone. And so they fight. And they have never been defeated. They have never been conquered. Because they are fighting for their lives. They are training up generation after generation after generation of warriors to continue to fight for their own land, their own nation, their own country. They have employed the Taliban, created the Taliban, formed the Taliban in order to govern their own areas of Afghanistan. They don't want to be under the Afghan government. They don't want the Afghan government to be centralized. They are tribal and they wish to operate in their tribes 
traditionally and as they see fit. Not as the U.S. sees fit, not as Saudi Arabia sees fit, not as Israel sees fit, not as the CIA sees fit, not as the Afghan government sees fit. How they see fit in their own traditions, their own cultures, in a much, much older society than we could ever imagine existing here in the U.S. And so they fight. And they fight tirelessly. They fight endlessly. They will not quit. Generation after generation after generation. They will fight for their way of life. Whether you call it anarchy or freedom or liberty or barbaric, it doesn't matter. It's what they want. And no amount of bombs or oppression or murder is going to stop them. So as you reflect on 9-11, remember the words of bin Laden as he was excited about the election of George W. Bush because he knew that was the kind of hot-headed, bloodthirsty, gotta flex my muscles to prove I'm a man type president that he wanted in office in order to draw the United States into a war of attrition that would eventually bankrupt the U.S. He was extremely happy with this. And though he is dead, he is still winning the war. He is getting what he wants. And Trump had the right idea whenever he went to the table with no preconceived notions. He said, y'all don't have to make any concessions. Let's just sit down and talk. And the mainstream media goes nuts. Oh, he's weak. He's weak. This is horrible. This is bad. Al-Qaeda is going to pop back up and start flying planes into buildings again. Oh, my goodness. And what they never talk about is how the Taliban despised Al-Qaeda. How the Taliban was more than happy in 2001 to hand over bin Laden and Al-Qaeda to the United States. But Bush rejected that notion. He insisted on war. The American people demanded war because it wasn't about what was good for the country. It was about re-election. It was about popularity. How do I become the popular president that is guaranteed a re-election? How do I remain in power? How do I leverage a crisis into political gain for myself? Anybody who steps back, any politician that steps back and does what's difficult and unpopular for the health of the U.S. as a country 
is doomed politically. And they know this. Every time these people are making decisions, these politicians or these candidates are making decisions or discussing their plans, they are not thinking about the health of the country. They are thinking about the health of their political career. Knowing that, they are just kicking the can down the road for a future generation to deal with the negative consequences of the policies they pass today. Knowing that, they can continue to finance wars and these these. I don't. I just lost my train of thought. Not even my train of thought. The word, um, Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> I don't know what just happened. Um, these policies, knowing that they can finance these these policies, these welfare policies, these entitlement. Thank you, thank you, Google. I think Google told me that these entitlement pol- policies through debt through more borrowed money from the Federal Reserve, and that the taxes being paid barely cover the interest on the debt. When you see Trump running up a trillion-dollar deficit in one year, you know that they don't care about the debt. When you hear Dick Cheney saying that deficits don't matter, You know they don't care about the debt. When Rush Limbaugh comes out and says, well, nobody cares about the debt, you know nobody cares about the debt. But you know who's going to care about the debt is that generation, whether it's the next generation or the generation after that or 10 generations down the road. When that bill comes due and everything collapses out from under the feet of that generation – They can look back at the greediest generation in American history and say these people destroyed the country. These people destroyed our future. And for what? For political gain. It was all done for political gain. Because nobody thinks with their head anymore. Everybody's thinking with their heart. I was having a conversation with a gentleman the other day, a really pretty moderate guy. And I'm explaining to them the economics of why these programs of universal health care and the Federal Reserve are going to clash and create have a devastating effect on the country in the future. And he said, quote, sometimes economics don't matter. Sometimes you just have to do the right thing no matter what it costs. And I'm like, but if the right thing robs a future generation of their ability to survive, their ability to thrive, 
is it moral just because you will no longer be alive whenever the consequences take place? Can you sleep with yourself knowing that your great-grandchildren or your great-great-grandchildren are going to be doomed to an agrarian lifestyle because you wanted something today you were you refused to put off today because of the consequences of tomorrow and this is what we're dealing with with these wars and with these entitlement programs they're fighting today they're passing legislation today that is immediately politically expedient at the uh, as they put off the consequences to future generations that are going to have a much less stable living environment than the United States has seen in over a hundred years. Now, I don't know when this happens, what, five years from now, two years from now, 150 years from now, that all these things come back to haunt the country, that all these negative consequences come through and destroy multiple generations because the generation of today is greedy. Because the generation of today has no ethic on what is just for the future of their family, let alone the future of the country. And that's what this war is. This war in Afghanistan that has been raging for nearly 18 years is a politically expedient money pit that will eventually lead to the bankruptcy of the United States. And that is exactly what bin Laden wanted. He didn't want, he didn't think blowing up the World Trade Center was going to destroy the United States economy. He didn't think killing 3,000 people was going to defeat the United States. What he knew was that the United States, once drawn in to a war of attrition, would not stop until they were bankrupt or were able to claim victory. And he also knew that no empire has ever been able to claim victory over the Pashtuns. That's my 9-11 one-year anniversary episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you got something out of it.
Talk to you all next week. I'm Tommy Salmons. Late.